Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're tackling how to handle difficult conversations, and we're joined by our guest, the Reverend Lindsay Geist, who is also a licensed clinical social worker. Thank you so much for being here today, Lindsay. Thanks for having me today. I am so glad that you're here and you're going to offer your wisdom and expertise about how we can handle difficult conversations, particularly on holiday and school breaks. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I have a passion for uh, walking with people in the ordinary and extraordinary times. Um, I have done that in my background through crisis intervention work, uh, working with a variety of populations um, in private practice, um, and often talking to people about how uh, their faith lens may or may not influence their journey along the way. Um, So have loved getting to work with all sorts of people and have conversations like this over the years and uh, help people brainstorm how best to navigate these difficult conversations, whether it is conversation tips and tools or uh, coping skills like how can you walk out of the house and go for a long run, um, which is my typical go-to coping skill uh, anytime things feel overwhelming or stressful. I've got to say, my dog has urgently needed walks over the years so many times. (laughs) It's uh, I don't know if our guests, our listeners can borrow a dog to get through a difficult conversation, but um, I'm an advocate of having a, a friendly animal available if you need one. Um, before we dive even more into difficult conversations and um, brainstorming how to figure out what might be right in, for different people in different situations, would you tell us a bit about what led you to your, your current career path? When you were thinking about going to college and um, developing your professional skills, what did you think Lindsay would do and how close uh, is now to what that original vision was? <laughs> I love this question uh, because this is nothing that I envisioned my life to look like um, back when I was you know, 15, 17 years old, uh, starting to think about college. Um, For anybody that knows my story, they're probably already chuckling that I went to college as a math major, and uh, I thought that I would just have some regular corporate business career. And then during college, I kept being present with people in really challenging moments. And what started as just close friends started to morph into like friends of friends said, Oh, maybe you want to go talk to Lindsay about that. And then I I kept kind of having coffee and spending time with lots of people and started realizing I love being present with people and just sitting with people in hard moments, not fixing it, just being present. And that made me really start exploring how could my future career uh, encapsulate all of that. So I started looking at graduate school, and that's when I went and got my master's in divinity and master's in social work uh, concurrently together because I knew I wanted to integrate both um, because often our faith beliefs impact how we see the world, and often our experiences in the world impact our faith beliefs. And so for me, I thought that it was important to have both. So this is never where I saw myself and I've journeyed all sorts of places along the way. I have worked in inpatient mental health and substance abuse detox. I have worked with uh, individuals and families that are homeless. I have served in private practice for years and, um, Some of my more current work is focusing on how to uh, keep pastors uh, mentally healthy and focus on their well-being and avoid burnout. 
And so it has been a journey all over the place, but the common themes are sitting with people in the ordinary and extraordinary moments. And how do we help people uh, focus on their own health and well-being? Well, I feel like I can throw out all my questions and just go with the one that that we raised, which is sitting with people and not fixing things. I'm wondering if we can end most difficult conversations before they start by adopting that practice. How do you do that? Um, It is the hardest with the people that you love the most uh, because we often want things to go back to normal. And so we quickly try to jump in and start fixing. Uh, We like a form of equilibrium. um, And so when something gets thrown off, we want to fix it. Uh, to go back to the way things were. And I, I don't know if I have a perfect answer how to not fix things. Um, I, I would always say step one, notice that you are doing it. Noticing is the first step in almost all of our journeys in changing something about ourselves. So notice that you're trying to fix things. Um, Two, ask yourself, why am I trying to fix this? And then three, start saying, what would it look like to just listen? And just listening looks like practicing active listening skills. And when we talk about active listening skills, is that reflecting back to the person what they've said? Yeah, so it's kind of, uh, think of it more as a paraphrasing back to somebody. So I hear you saying X, Y, and Z, and don't put your own interpretation on it. It, Your job is not to spin it. Your job is to simply make sure that you heard what they said. As we consider people going home for school breaks, whether the break lands on their particular uh, family's holidays or not, because we're taping in the United States, uh, we have listeners in multiple parts of the world. Um, In the United States, the school breaks are set on a fairly standard calendar. Um, And so students are sent home at times that coincide with the Christian holidays. And many, many students don't observe those holidays or their families' important holidays happen at days when school has no break. Um, And yet the school mostly closes. Um, And the majority of students uh, return home or go to a a friend's home. And when you spend a lot of time together, particularly if you haven't seen each other in a while, there can be some difficult conversations. Um, One of them might be that now the student is returning home having had a lot of autonomy and experiencing young adulthood on their own terms. And now they're back in the family home or in the home of a, of a family friend, how do people negotiate boundaries? Cause that can be a difficult conversation, whether the people have it out loud or through behaviors. I think the, one of the first things to realize is that when you, when somebody is coming home, perhaps from school for a holiday break um, or a family member is coming to visit or something Uh, We as human beings change over time. We aren't stagnant and we aren't the same person today that we were six months ago, 10 years ago, any of that. But we have a hard time when we don't see somebody regularly, uh, either knowing that they've changed or uh, absorbing and accepting that they've changed. So I notice the most when somebody may come home from college They've been exposed to all sorts of new experiences and thoughts, and their thought patterns might have changed. And so it can be really hard for other family members to start hearing that somebody may think differently from then, from them if they always had thought one way. Um, so I would say one of the key things before before even putting up boundaries is to try to recognize that people could have changed their thought patterns, uh, habits, quirks about their personality. While there's so much of us that remains constant, 
there are some uh, changes that happen over time. So trying to meet people there, I think, is really critical to start with. Um, And then if you are the one that has changed some, well, hopefully we've all changed some. Um, But I think every family has some conversations that you know should just not come up at the dinner table that you are on polar opposites and you know that like aunt so-and-so is not going to handle the conversation well. Um, And it's okay to say things like, I'm not going to discuss that, or that is not a topic that I feel comfortable having dialogue around. Um, Or I am happy to hear uh, your thoughts and I'm happy to share my thoughts uh, if they are not judged or statements like that, that you can choose what you do in response to other people. One of the common questions that comes up when you haven't seen someone in a while, whether you're, I I mean, I got this one a lot when I was in grad school and I would go to my hometown for visits. There were these future questions. What are you going to do with that degree? When are you going to be done? Um, And I didn't come prepared with, you know, job interview questions and my resume for them to look over. I came home tired. Uh, I came, I came there looking for some respite and those questions were, however well-meaning they were, felt judgmental and uncomfortable because I wanted to come home as I was. And usually I came home fairly depleted. Do you have advice for people who want to ask those kinds of questions? Is there a time and a place or is it really not a question to ask at all? I think that it it is an okay question to ask um, as long as you're okay with somebody choosing not to respond. Um, if you are the person that is being asked all the questions, you have a right to say you know what, I I really need a break from thinking about the future or answering some of these questions, and I need to just be for a little bit. I think it's okay to say that. And if you are the person that hasn't seen a loved one in a while and you want to know what's going on in their life, you could start by asking broadly, what's new in your life? What are you excited about? What are your... Uh, Do you have any uh, big plans coming up? Um, And you can also even ask, uh, couch the question in, I would love to learn about what this next chapter might look for you, look like for you. Um, I would love to learn some about it. Is that something that you are okay talking about? right now. And you have to be okay with the person saying, no, it feels really stressful, or I don't know, and I don't want to talk about it, or it feels really pressure filled for the answer. And, and so I think part of coming home for holidays or being with each other is about doing this dance of what saying I am willing to meet you anywhere that you want to meet me in this conversation, but I'm also okay if you create boundaries here. When we've been at school for so long, we're on this training to try to find and give the right answer. It can be difficult for the student transitioning back into the home environment to move out of the mindset of the person in front of me wants me to give them the right answer what I'm supposed to do is give them the answer that they want. Because of course, that's what we've been doing for months on end at school. How do do people make that shift from, I don't have to give the right answer to the person in front of me. I have to take care of myself. I think it's okay to do either thing. If, If it feels like less work to give the right answer, Um, and that is the way of caring for yourself, then that's okay. If it also feels like the best way of caring for yourself is to, um, is to 
to give your true answer and recognize that it could come with some thoughts and opinions from other people, then that's okay too. Part of that is monitoring what is the best way to care for you. And sometimes one way feels easier than the other. For some people, they reach a point where they realize that their family of origin is only going to be difficult conversations or it's only going to be given giving the right answer to get through it. And they begin to make a chosen family and to spend time with the chosen family instead. And while it's often the right choice for them to be with the chosen family, it is normal also, particularly when the larger culture is running advertisements about how important family of origin is and how nostalgic it is to have difficult feelings about the choice that you made, even though it's right for you. Do you have any words of wisdom for those people? I think that there, you need to do what is best for you. Um, I, I'm grateful that the, you know, some commercials are starting to change and things like that of people being together. Friendsgiving is being emphasized more and more of people gathering together that may or may not be family. Um, I also think that the beauty of society right now of um, people getting married later, um, not having, not everybody having kids, things like that, uh, increases the world of flexibility of being with your immediate family or not. I think that you you need to do what is best for you and if that is spending time with other people that is that is great i hope that the pandemic sort of opened that door a little bit that you don't have to go back to immediate family um that when people couldn't travel at the beginning it limited who they could interact with and people started interacting with different people um and I hope that's kind of the beginning of permission granting. There will always be people that have stuck in their mind, uh, family is the place to be. Um, and some of those people, family is really healthy. And so that's why they believe that. And other people, uh, I think that they believe that because that's what they long for, that family were that place. Um, so I hope that whatever you choose uh, you choose what is best for you. And there will always be somebody that will not agree with your decision, regardless of what it is. Any decision you make, I mean, people won't agree with the decision over like how you make the mashed potatoes. So there will be people that will challenge things and you need to be confident in why you are making your decision. And you don't have to tell people why. I think that's the other false belief that we have sometimes is that we have to tell everybody why we believe something. Um, and you don't owe people an explanation unless you want to give it. What are some other myths that people are carrying that you wish they could let go of? One of the biggest myths is that all holidays are happy. <laughs> and I... The more and more people that I have talked to over the years, the more I recognize how grief is present at the table. Um, grieving hopes and dreams that are not coming true, grieving people that have died, grieving relationships that have changed. Um, and I think that the movies have created and commercials and you know all of media has created this idea that everybody comes together and it is really easy and it is not. Um, and we revert back to all of our childhood roles. Um, and you, when you think about it, you're really asking all these adults that have lived on their own for a while to come under one roof and all modify their own ways of living to be under one roof together for a little while. And, that's really challenging. So I think the myths that everybody's happy at holidays and that everything is easy 
at holidays um, it is not true. I also think the myth that uh, like you have traditions and people all do the same thing every single holiday, that is not true either. Um, you know, perhaps you're a family that's always gathered at the cabin or, you know, done something a certain way. There will be a time when that will have to shift due to all sorts of different reasons. And um, that's hard when things change. But my guess is, is that even in your traditions, every holiday does not look the same. If we were to name what is slightly different, there's probably somebody a little different around the table or somebody else stirred the gravy instead of the other person or um, somebody, you know, tried something new or a new member of the family joined um, things I think are less uh, the same than we believe in our memories that they are. For people who maybe have changed face, is there a time during these gatherings to say I'm, I'm no longer of that faith and this is the blessing that feels right to me or I want to not go to that service that you're going to because it doesn't feel right for me to go? How do you broach those kinds of changes and letting the people that you'll be celebrating with know? I... There is not a perfect answer to that. Um, in in counseling, I would often work with people leading up to the holidays to kind of decide what battles they want to choose. Um, that if you don't give people time to process before the holiday, you most likely are asking for a potential fight or conflict right then because it's something you've probably processed for a long time. Um, but you're literally catching everybody else present off guard. Um, and they haven't had the same processing time. And so you have to be mindful of that, that, uh, they're not going to catch up with you that fast. Um, and, and that doesn't mean there's anything bad about everybody else. That's just realistic that something that you have journeyed on a long time, they're not immediately going to go, oh, no big deal. Okay. Um, Just because it's different than what they knew about you or envisioned about you. Um, I think that if it's really important for you to let everybody know, I would do it ahead of time if possible um, and decide uh, what things are willing, uh, you are willing to, um, uh, kind of stake in the sand, uh, make your mark in the sand. Like if, if they are saying a blessing of a different faith tradition is, is it incredibly important for you to have your own faith tradition recognized or can you be, uh, is that the best way for you to feel respected or can you respect somebody else's faith tradition? And since they may be the one hosting, just let it be. Um, The biggest thing about gatherings is that we're not all going to get our way. And so sometimes I think that we battle for control. Um, And maybe your family is one that is willing to say like three different blessings at dinner. Um, Or maybe your family, that is a fight. So choosing, um, it doesn't mean you have to be a part of something that's harmful to you, but choosing how much you want to push back on something different. I believe that um, if you don't want to no longer believe something, um, you have a right to not go to that faith service. And at the same time, um, I would encourage you to decide is, does it feel harmful to go, um, to be present with your family, um, or not? 
And so all of this is being mindful of what's healthy for you, but also how is it going to impact everybody else around you and what, what are worth the battles and what aren't? It sounds like as we let our loved ones know who we've grown into as adults and who we continue to grow into on our life journey, we need to consider if we're asking for a battle, as you've mentioned, which is a control dynamic, or if we're asking to be known and how much we want these people to know us, how safe it is for them to know us, and if they are the people who are ever truly going to know us. Yeah. I think um, I think what I have seen in my years of working with people in my practice, it is interesting how often as we grow and change and find ourselves uh people feel like their family does not know them. And that may be really true. What I often ask the individual is, are you letting your family get to know you or not? Because sometimes we can be upset that people don't know us, but we are also protecting ourselves um, and not sharing. And so unless the other people are mind readers, they won't know you. Um, So I think it's partly about doing a dance around that too, of if we want people to know us, it requires some vulnerability. Um, If we aren't willing or don't want to be vulnerable, then we have to be okay with people not knowing us as well. For people who are protecting, is that often because they're protecting themselves from rejection? I wonder if if it's uh, perceived rejection, because a lot of times uh, we may or may not know if we will actually be rejected or it's our perception of what other people might think about us. And, and so perhaps that is it. Um, perceived rejection, uh, perceived judgment. Um. It's, it's all about what we believe might and could happen. Um, and even if people have a regular pattern of things, we don't know for sure. We will never 100% know for sure how people are going to choose to act and respond. If the person's fear that they will be rejected is founded in a gut instinct that they have that turns out to be true, is it possible that while that person may reject them, someone else in that group may circle back and say, I'm, I'm glad to know that about you. And even though these important people in the family system rejected you, I still want you in the family. Of course, there is always a chance of that. And again, we all grow and change. And so I think that if we are also only gathering with these people once or twice a year, um, then we might not know everything about them either. And they may surprise us. There might be somebody else in the group that might surprise you that is willing to accept you um, in a new way. One of the things that um, I wish I'd known when I was younger was um, the idea of best behavior at important events, that everyone's going to be on their best behavior or the statement that I expect you all to be on your best behavior. Um, I remember planning a very important event um, around the idea if I could hold it early enough in the day, it could stay alcohol-free because I don't drink and I don't want to have events where that happens. And um, that uh, failed uh, despite my best attempts. Because I didn't know that key important thing, that on a stressful thing like an important event, best behavior is sort of a myth. People are still going to show up as them, and they're still going to do the things that they do. Do you want to maybe set some of us free from the idea that we can situation craft so that everyone will be on their best behavior? Well, I also think what's hard is that Best behavior um, is 
can be contradictory to this vulnerable, authentic behavior. If everybody's crafting and curating how they're interacting with each other, is it real and genuine interaction? Um, And is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for it to be true and authentic and genuine? Or are you looking for it to go smoothly? Um, And part of that, I I mean, I think about that example of if I hold it early enough, then I can hope that people won't drink or won't get drunk or, um, you know, might act differently. Um, We can also create boundaries. You can say we are holding it earlier in the day and not serving alcohol. Um, And people can choose what they do in response to that. Um, I mean, I do think that setting up, uh, you know, by trying to hold it earlier, you can hope to avoid things. But again, it comes back to control. How much can we control other people? We can't. We can control what we do and how we react to other people. Um, we can't, uh, if there is alcohol in the house and you are serving it, um, you could say you can't drink too much. Um, but again, you don't have control over somebody else. You can say, if you drink too much, I will put you in an Uber and send you home. Um, you can choose how you react to things. Um, so again, we can't set up perfect dynamics to control everybody else's behavior. We have to choose how we are going to respond to how people act. In situations where you made the boundaries clear and you had a dry space and it didn't work out, and this is being a very specific example, so I trust that listeners can use different details for a situation that they had where they were careful and it, it and, and was meeting their safety and personal belief needs and it, it did not work for things completely coming out of the blue. Um, what do you do or what would be a healthy way to create events that don't include that person so that that won't be repeated? I don't know if there's a perfect way to uninvite somebody from an event. Um, you will have to do some truth telling to them if you want to heal that relationship and you want them at some point to maybe be there in the future. Um, you can say, unfortunately, based on your choices last time, I am not inviting you to this. Um, or you can also give them the choice to respond. Um, you know, this will be an alcohol free event. If that is something that is not okay for you, you don't have to come. Um, I can understand that you might want to make a different choice and go somewhere else. Um, you have a right to set up boundaries. I, I would encourage you to try to, uh, to convey enough of those boundaries if you wanted somebody to be able to modify their behavior in the future. Um, if you don't ever want them there again, go ahead and just burn it all down and don't tell them why they're, you know, you can't come to this Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but my guess is, is that's not going to really be the most helpful long-term plan. Another thing that can come up at gatherings, um, particularly if you're home for a, a, a visit for quite a while or you're in someone's home for quite a while, is medical conversations can come up. Um, and people have different feelings about their privacy and about feeling othered. Uh, when someone brings something up to them. Um, what is your uh, wisdom on those kinds of conversations that I think many people feel are a way of getting to know you better or they feel are quite natural? Like, why? I've noticed that you aren't eating the turkey. What's going on? And and then it's sort of everyone, or it feels like everyone's turning to look at you. So when these types of medical conversations come up, what's your advice? 
I think anytime any of these conversations come up, I would start in a place of uh, trying to give the person the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and maybe they don't, and maybe that's not truthful of how they're handling it, but try to think of it very innocently. They want to get to know you. And people are straight up awkward at figuring out segues into conversations. That's why when you talk to random strangers, they automatically ask you, like, what do you do for a living? Or are you married and how many kids do you have? Because they don't know any other conversation starters. And so maybe they just think that this is a helpful conversation starter. Um, And so what would it be like in our response if we start believing that people just are awkward and picking any random intro to uh, segue in? Um, My guess is it would totally change conversations if we just see people as awkward. Um, But also, if people ask you something that you'd rather not talk about, you can just say, that's not something I'm comfortable talking about right now, or I want to talk about right now. Um, People may press and might say why, and you can just say, that is my decision right now. Um, So you have a right to say, to set boundaries of what you're willing to share. Um, Also, if you're not eating the turkey and somebody says, why are you not eating the turkey? Um, You can give a truthful answer or you can always crack a joke um, that you're like, I, I don't know them. I didn't get a chance to know them. And, uh, and, and I like to, uh, <laughs> you're like, I, I like to really, uh, know what I, I need to meet the livestock right, before dinner. Right. I need to know if it had a good life. I need to know if it died happy, um, before I eat it. I mean, you can be as quirky and weird as you want along the way. Um, You can say something like, I don't eat anything that, uh, you know, pretends to fly sometimes. Um, (laughs) Like, you can be weird um, and try to just derail and redirect the conversation. Um, Or you can share as much as you want. Um, Sometimes I think sharing the true answer uh, can also help the asker uh, put their foot back in their mouth. (laughs) You know, it's like... Uh, why do you not eat it? Um, because my doctor said that I had to give up X, Y, and Z because these, these numbers in my last blood test weren't very good. And, um, they said that I need to get serious about this before things get really bad. And, and most people didn't really expect an honest, hard answer. (laughs) And so sometimes it just, uh, makes them eat their own words. So you can decide how much you want to share and how much you want to reveal, uh, to somebody. Um, and sometimes even just asking, like, it sounds like that's really important to you. Tell me a little bit about why me not eating the turkey feels important to you. And then they have to explain why they asked the awkward question. I like your, um, statement about how we're all awkward. And if we approached everybody as that that they're awkward, we're awkward. I I went home for a visit. This was uh, a while ago, and there was a, apparently this new restaurant in in our hometown, and so the suggestion was, well, let's go, let's go eat there. And so I'm looking at the menu, and it's one of those where I wasn't prepared uh, with any um, jokey or polite or anything else way to say. I just said, I'm so uncomfortable. I have to go. And my dad said, why? And I said, because there's kangaroo on the menu. Hmm. And he said, well, what if none of us order it? And I said, it won't change that it's back there in the kitchen, daddy, and it's dead. Hmm. And he knew that kangaroos were one of my favorite animals. And I know that that pulls into a lot of cultural biases, what we, what value we attach to which animal and why. Um, uh, as a vegetarian, I, um, try to be pretty egalitarian, but, uh, that was, that was particularly, I couldn't do it. I, I, I was physically needing to get out of that restaurant and I didn't have a, 
polite way to decline this invitation while I'm in the restaurant. I just was super awkward about it. Like, Daddy, I, I can't. And he said, you know, we'll go. And when we got outside, someone else in the group said, why are we leaving? Because, you know, she's uncomfortable. And my dad said, well, they also had shark on the menu. And I love sharks. And she's right. They're dead back in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) And so we just imperfectly, awkwardly uh, couldn't do it. Were we polite to everyone in the restaurant? Yes. We didn't go to the person who had seated us and said, how could you work here or anything? We just said, we're sorry, we're not going to be able to to stay after all. And they said, no problem. And we thanked them, you know, and left. So we did try to be respectful to the people who owned the and worked in the establishment, even as it was not right for us to stay. And we were quickly and awkwardly exiting. Um, and the only way I could do that was to own that I was having strong feelings and that it was too awkward for me to suddenly navigate that situation. It had never in my life occurred to me that I would end up in a restaurant where that was on the menu. And again, that's a huge cultural bias, but that's where I was. I I love that moment. Did, um, did you say that it was, uh, like your dad or some other family member that said, I love shark and sharks on the menu? Yeah. It was several of us in our family who went and, um, when when I outed myself that I can't do this, then he was free to be like I can't either. Well, because yes, he he um, he grew up in Florida and he loves the ocean and um, he f- finds sharks to be an incredibly important part of the ocean ecosystem. And he couldn't he couldn't handle that that was on the menu either. What I really love is that whether or not he could that actually bothered him to the level that he needed to leave or not. Um, It's also a great example of uh, somebody else. If you see somebody uncomfortable, how you can step in and be in it with them. That, um, you know, if, if it was somebody that, again, no other animal bothered them on the menu, but they could say something like that uh, to make you feel less alone and to be like, see, you know, She's not the only one. I too have this and I need to leave. Um, that I think that there's something about solidarity uh, without ganging up on people, but just making people not feel alone in their choices that can be so beautiful. How can we in situations do that more for each other? I mean, he didn't rescue me. He agreed. Okay. Let's go. And like you said, there was solidarity. There was validation. Um, We did uh, go, I believe, get takeout somewhere else because at that point, the other people who were with us were incredibly hungry and were like, well, let's get you fed fast. We're not anti-dinner. We just can't eat there. (laughs) Um, And, you know, trying to bring everybody back in with their needs and get get, get them met. Um, What are some ways that that people can, because I'm assuming that people who are self-selecting for this episode want to be part of the solutions. Hmm. Um, so, so let's reframe the question. So we're looking for how can we support one another when somebody is not feeling included or what, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. That, that in, in, um, in, in different points in the conversation you've mentioned, well, one could do this, but it, they can consider then that they might be burning down the relationship or one could do that, but then they might want to consider that that's a hard boundary uh, with that person. And it seems that there are ways to offer solidarity as another tool we can use in navigating difficult situations and awkward, difficult conversations and how we can do that in a way that restores uh, relationships rather than burns them down. I think that, um, Uh, I think about like when families get together, there's almost always some point during the day when decisions are made about activities. Like, okay, we're all going to go for a walk. Well, there might be somebody that's not as mobile in the group and they uh, either feel pressured to go for the walk or are having a hard time speaking up about that. It is really easy for somebody else to say, you know what, I'm going to stay back here with so-and-so. Um, I'm not going to walk today either. Um, or if you say that a topic is off limits, 
a way to agree with that is um, to say, okay, I'm with you that that topic can often be controversial. We should probably just skip that. Um, Or you can even joke like, okay, let's put that on the list of things we don't talk about today. Um, And if there's a lot of things in your controversial family, then maybe you say, man, this list is getting long. We better build a list of things we can talk about (laughs) because that might be harder to build. Um, I think as long as we are willing to learn from each other, Um, or to respect each other's decisions. Um, We don't all have to decide the same thing. Um, That we, in solidarity, you can choose to go along with that person um, and make the choice with them. Um, Or, uh, again, when somebody makes a choice, um, they have to recognize that there might not be solidarity when they make the choice that's best for them. Um, And so the other people have to make a decision of whether they're going to step in and go with them and support them in that or um, support them simply by letting them make a different choice. I want to circle back to another way of offering support that we touched on earlier, which was, trying to be mindful of what things we might want to give people heads up about before we arrive to either visit their home for a meal or stay in their home for a period of time or join them for an important cultural or religious event. Um, how can we give heads up about a change in us or important information that's it's important to us and we know we're going to share it with them? Um, is that something to do in a text? Is that something to do in a phone call? And is it something to do fairly explicitly? We might not want to hint and say, oh, I have big news when I get home and potentially add anxiety stress to the person who's probably already in a stressful mode in prepping for the visit or the event. I think it depends on your relationship of how you give the heads up. Um, If you do it in written form, email, text, something like that, you are giving the other person time to process. And uh, if you call them, then you have to be willing to have dialogue at that moment uh, because they may have questions. And so um, I think that you have to decide how on the spot you are willing to answer those questions. Um, and you can say no on the phone. Um, I would just think through how the person might best receive and digest information. Um, you can always call them and say, I have something to share with you before I get there. Um, I'm going to let you think about it and we can schedule a call if you have any questions between now and then. Um, and, and so you get to share things early um, and let them figure out how they're going to process it. Um, Again, we've said before, if you're sharing something, my guess is, is that you've journeyed with it a while and it will catch the other person off guard. And so they might not be all in instantaneously. And that says nothing about their character. It means that they learned a new piece of information and their brain is doing exactly what our brains do is kind of turn the information over, look at it, look at how our schema, our our plans and understanding of the world is in our brains, and then figuring out how this new piece of information fits in there or our schema needs to change. And so that doesn't happen with, you know, the just the flick of a switch. Um, So making sure that we give people a heads up. Um, Think through though, what sorts of heads up you want to give everybody. Um, (laughs) I mean, you, it may or may not be helpful to say to somebody like, Hey, by the way, I'm now a Republican or a Democrat uh, and change my party affiliation before you come home. Like, do you need to make a public stance? Maybe depends on your family. Um, 
do you need to give everybody heads up if you're now a vegetarian? Um, maybe, uh, so that you don't all of a sudden not be able to eat certain things and, um, people can have a chance to respond and modify, uh, some of the things being offered. Um, so, and, and people may not modify anything and you also have to be okay with that. Um, so just choosing how to let people know early, both based on how can you tell your story without interruption and how can you give them time to process it and let things fully sink in. Through the written communication, is it helpful to be explicit that, uh, you know, hey, aunt, you're the first person I'm telling this is private? Because once we put something in writing, people can share it and they may, particularly if they're in the household with other people, may hand over their phone and say, hey, I just got this text. Did you get it too? And no, you're the first person who is trusted with this information, but the text didn't say that. Is there a way to let people know if this is a soft rollout of this information, if this is your starting one by one or a, a statement of I'm letting the family know before I come. And then you say what you're going to be letting them know. I think that's a great idea of telling people that. Um, that's the same uh, if you make a phone call or something too, that uh, families, once you tell something to a family member, uh, there, there is often just like communal family knowledge. And so people just assume that it's something that everybody knows. Um, so I don't think that there's anything bad with saying you are the only one that knows this, or I wanted to tell you first, I'll let you know when I've told other people. Um, or you have the, I'll give you, I'm telling you, feel free to pass that through the grapevine. Um, you know, sometimes if you've just ended a really bad relationship and you don't want to have to answer questions about where that person is or how your relationship is at Thanksgiving, you might not have the energy to call every family member. You may send a note or call one person and say, so-and-so and I are, we broke up, we separated, we divorced, we're in the process of divorce. Um, can you make sure that spreads through the family before we gather together around the table? Um, so I think that thinking through what is the best way for this information to go out there? Do you want it to get spread? Do you want to be the spreader? Do you want nobody to know except one person? One of the other things that I know I've experienced, so I'm going to guess that other people have too, is you arrive and you're given sudden information at the front door. Um, I understand, I think, why people do that. Can we talk about the pros and cons of that approach? Again, this all comes back to processing time. Um, it's, it's kind of like th what people see as the best version of giving you a heads up early, um, but they just really stun you at that moment. Or it's something so heavy that they don't want it uh, just lingering all weekend. They'd rather say it up front. It's okay. If you are the person that comes in that front door, <laughs> it's okay to say, okay, that's a lot of information. Um, I need to think about that. And can we talk about that in an hour or two? Um, or can we process that tomorrow? Or... Um, you know, depending on the piece of information, it's okay to, as a responder, not have to respond in real time. Um, again, I think people do it because they, things have been weighing on them and they often want to get it out of the way, or they want to put a stance out there early to say like, Hey, we're not going to do this. Um, and all of that can be helpful for people. Um, it may not be helpful for you as the receiver. Um, again, this circles back to all of us are kind of awkward and trying to figure out life the best that we can. None of us are going to be doing any of this perfectly. Um, I mean, I think that we could all tell our own awkward stories of family gatherings, of 
uh, we're just messy human beings <laughs> and and we're going to have awkward interactions. And it's like learning a dance that sometimes we have dances that we know really well. And sometimes we have two left feet and we just make it awkward. And it takes a little more practice to learn it a little bit better. And how can we be kind uh, to ourselves and show ourselves some self-compassion while showing others compassion through this whole process? Um I think that is one of the key things that we need to remember this holiday season. And all holiday seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We only have a few minutes left. So what would your wisdom be for hosts of these special events? Because we've, we've covered that a number of myths that, that guests and hosts alike carry that are, populated throughout the larger community. So even as we try to root them out, then some authority figure comes back and says, no, 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 it is the best time of year, or this is the most important thing, or it does have to look exactly like that, or it's not consecrated unless you do it exactly this way. And there's a lot of myths that it, it needs to be a certain way for certain reasons, many of which are quite valid. Um, and yet the host's can't spend the time trying to control the outcome or the situation. What what grace and wisdom would you offer hosts during um, holiday times and school breaks and times when they're inviting people into their home? People love to be included. And people all have some power and control in their own lives. And like I said, when a bunch of adults get under a roof together... It is really awkward when you're used to running the show and maybe somebody else is um, hosting. And so as a host, I would say, um, you know, share some of that power and control. Delegate, tell somebody to bring dessert. Is it going to end up exactly the same way that you might make pie? Maybe not. Um, but figure out how to delegate um, and give people a little piece of their own ownership. Um, that will take things off of your plate as a host um, and maybe let you engage a little more with everybody. Um, and it might not run exactly as you want, but it lets everybody feel a bit included. Um, and, and figure out kind of some of those activities. Um, if you want people out of the kitchen, Come up with an activity ahead of time that's going to keep them out of the kitchen. Um, I mean, we've had years where uh, kids made a whole bunch of turkey hats for Thanksgiving um, that required lots of cutting and gluing and stapling, and it kept them busy for like hours. Um, and then it also created high entertainment when everybody had to wear a turkey hat later. Um, so just try to figure out ways that people can feel like they are bringing something to the gathering, um, bringing themselves or bringing something unique to the gathering. Um, and, and I think that's a great way to host and it's nothing's ever going to be perfect and just laugh it off at the beginning and figure out what crazy story you're going to be able to tell from this gathering together, because we got lots of good stories from gatherings over the years. And so what silly weird thing is going to happen this time? Um, and maybe even just wait for it as a family go, Oh goodness, which one is going to be the thing that we're going to tell for years to come. What do you hope listeners take away? I hope that you realize that, uh, none of us have this all figured out. No holiday is perfect for any of us. No family gathering is perfect for any of us. Uh, no, Christmas break when we've dreamed of coming home is perfect for any of us. Um, it's all messy and we're all trying to figure it out as we go. And so how can we provide compassion to ourselves as we are changing and growing and things look different? And how can we show compassion to others as they, uh, may put their foot in their mouth, say things that feel hurtful um, and all of that along the way, um, our humanity just shines through sometimes and how messy and awkward we are. And if we give ourselves, uh, 
some kindness and grace around that, uh, how much more freeing it is to gather with other people together. Thank you so much for being here today, Lindsay Geist, and giving us your wisdom about how we can handle difficult conversations and difficult gatherings. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.